0: Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today I'm joined by Lisa Fagin Davis who is the Executive Director of the Medieval Academy of America in Boston, Massachusetts. Last week Lisa came to my attention when she published an article in the Washington Post about the Voynich Manuscript. The Voynich manuscript is one of the great mysteries of the medieval period and one of the most famous of all rare books. This 15th century codex can't be understood. The language of the text cannot be read. There are illustrations but they muddy the water rather. Perhaps it's about herbology and pharmacy or astronomy and cosmology or human biology or just humble recipes which is actually my favorite option. But anyway, the manuscript is housed in the Beinecke Library at Yale University. It's named after Wilfrid Voynich, a book dealer who purchased it in 1912 and exhibited the book across America. There are many theories about who wrote it. Candidates include Roger Bacon, a 13th century friar who studied science and nature, Giovanni Fontana, a 15th century Italian engineer, John Dee an English mathematician in the 16th century and in the last couple of years more theories have been put forward which brings us back to Lisa who is somewhat frustrated by theories that are rather undercooked welcome Lisa
1: well thank you so much for having me Richard I'm thrilled to be here
0: thank you for joining us okay to start with can you describe your personal experiences with the Voynich manuscript
1: of course. I uh, received my Ph.D. from Yale in 1993 in Medieval Studies. And while I was a graduate student at Yale, I had a part-time job at the Beinecke Library as the assistant to the curator of pre-1600 manuscripts, who at the time was uh, Robert G. Badcock. And in addition to my other responsibilities as the assistant to the curator, I was also given the responsibility of... Uh, handling Voynich correspondence in part because Dr. Babcock uh, had other things to do with his time um, and so I became quite interested in the manuscript. Uh, my studies involved medieval paleography codicology uh, and medieval manuscripts in general and so the Voynich represents one of the most fascinating Uh, examples of a medieval manuscript. And it was quite thrilling for me as a graduate student to have the opportunity not only to handle the manuscript, but to be really involved in the scholarly and not so scholarly efforts to decode it and to understand it. And ever since then, uh, the Voynich has sort of drifted in and out of my life uh, as my career has progressed. My scholarly interests have to do with pre-1600 European manuscripts in North America, thinking about how they got here, where they are, how many there are. And the Voynich manuscript, of course, being a European almost certainly pre-1600 definitely manuscript in North America, fits quite solidly into the realm of, uh, of my professional interests in thinking about how manuscripts ended up in North America, why they're here, how they got here, and, and telling their stories, which is really the point of not only a lot of my published scholarship, but also my blog, The Manuscript Road Trip.
0: You handled correspondence for the manuscript. What did people want to know?
1: Well, of course, this was in the early 1990s, and so uh, nothing was, there was no internet, there was no email, so it was all analog, handwritten correspondence. Sometimes people writing asking for uh, reproductions of the manuscript, so I would, you know, send them the microfilm or the copy flow uh, of the images that they were looking for. Um, And also people sending their solutions. Which is, of course, um, something that's quite that happens quite often um, at the Beinecke. They are constantly receiving a deluge of um, theories from people all over the world, and now they get them by email, they get them electronically. Um, but back when I was uh, working at the Beinecke, they were coming in by um, you know by snail mail, and so it was my responsibility to respond to them, say thank you, um, and uh, I, I ended up with some interesting uh, correspondence because, uh, because of that. I'm always interested in hearing new theories uh, and uh, getting to know the people um, the people behind them.
0: Okay, so in your Washington Post article you wrote that people rush to make claims about solving the manuscript before their research has been properly confirmed why does this happen so often?
1: I think people who study this manuscript tend to become really obsessed with it. And they have their own pet theory and they don't they don't like to hear criticism of their theory in part because they have so much personally invested in it. And so n- nobody likes to be critiqued. Nobody wants to hear that someone thinks that their uh, work is wrong. And so people, don't necessarily submit their work to peer review or to expert review I should say. Um, they want to get it out there and stake their claim. Um, there is no, it, It's not like Fermat's theorem where there's a reward being offered. There's no reward being offered for the first person to come up with a theory that holds water. The, the reward is um, one of uh, fame or intellectual pride. Um, But none of the theories that have been put out ever, starting from the, you know, the 17th century when people started really studying this manuscript and thinking about it, there's been no theory that holds up under detailed scrutiny. Um, And I think in part, the authors of, of a lot of these theories want to rush to get their theories out there in public because they know there are weaknesses to them. They know that perhaps their fundamental methodology is flawed or they're making assumptions and they don't they don't want to be subjected to peer review because they know at that point that the holes in their theory will be uh, will be pointed out.
0: One of the more recent theories was someone saying that the manuscript was written in a language called proto-romance. What's proto-romance?
1: it's not something that really um, is known to have existed. Proto-romance is the term used by the author of that particular theory uh, to basically, basically to theorize that the the romance languages, so that is all the languages descended from Latin, so that's French and Spanish and uh, various others are uh, had a an existence, a very early form. And his theory is that in the early 15th century, the Voynich manuscript um, was written, was transcribed using these strange symbols, but in uh, of this early Latin language. But by the early 15th century, Latin was a fully developed language both uh, written Latin, spoken Latin, liturgical Latin, Latin literature, Latin philosophy. Latin was a very highly developed and sophisticated language by the early 15th century, by centuries before then even. So there's, there's absolutely no evidence that this language called Proto-Romance, if it ever really existed, as perhaps some kind of late transitional form of Latin in the late Roman period, maybe, I'm not sure. If it ever existed at all, it certainly did not exist in the early 15th century. It would have been long out of use and having long since been replaced either by Latin itself or by the Romance languages, which by that time were fully developed languages.
0: Okay, so does our struggle to understand the manuscript show that we don't really understand the medieval period? Is that too big uh, an assumption?
1: Well, I think there there are two things going on. So on the one hand, I think it has a lot to do with um, a, a misunderstanding of how the scientific method works. You need to, if you're going to present a solution to the Voynich, if you're going to to translate, decode the Voynich manuscript, you have to have a, a cogent logical argument that's based in facts that has, uh, that isn't grounded in wishful thinking. And of most of the the people who present these hypotheses are starting with fundamentally flawed assumptions. So that's one piece of it. But on the other hand, all, uh, it is certainly true that the the general human love and lure of mysteries, wherever and whenever they come from, is definitely part of what's going on here. Um, Along with other great mysteries of the world, who built the pyramids, what's the, you know, what happened, was Atlantis a thing? You know, there are so many Mysteries out there, and you see them on TV shows all the time. You know um, where people talk about this mystery and that mystery, and the Voynich manuscript is one of those. Um, but there, you're right to point out that because it's medieval, it does have a particular. Uh, there are particular issues associated with medieval objects. Um, the the Middle Ages are fundamentally misunderstood in the public sphere. So as I said in my article, people watch Game of Thrones, uh, they play medieval themed video games, they watch medieval themed you know, fantasy movies, and then they think they've learned something about the Middle Ages, and they haven't. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones is, is pseudo um, medieval. Medieval themed video games have very little grounding in the actualities of the Middle Ages. And so when you take an object like the Voynich Manuscript and you, you misinterpret it in that context, it definitely uh, has a, um, an additional layer of, uh, of issues because of this fundamental misappropriation of medieval narrative that you see not just in Popular culture, but you also see it now happening um, in the white supremacist community, for example, which which um, has fundamentally misappropriated medieval narrative and medieval literature to um, forward their own agendas. So when so there is this, you, there's a responsibility to be straightforward about the reality of the Middle Ages and not to um, constantly. Uh, veil it in this fantasy version of the Middle Ages that we are all constantly bombarded with.
0: Do you think the manuscript will ever be understood?
1: Well, I hope it will be. Linguists um, who have done really complex linguistic computer-aided analyses of the manuscript, so they look at Um, character frequency analyses or different combinations of letters and different words that recur and compare it to the patterns in known languages. And they use that information to try and glean either what language is being encoded or transcribed and also even the fundamental question of whether it's gibberish or it does represent an actual language. And linguists disagree. Uh, in their conclusions about whether it represents a natural human language or whether it's gibberish. I, I find myself swayed by those who believe that it does represent an actual language, uh, an actual human developed language, not an invented language like Elvish or uh, gibberish. And um, if that's true, then I think the, you know, to quote the X-Files, the truth is out there and once um, someone has zeroed in on a human language that fits all the patterns that that we see in the Voynich manuscript then i think we will be able to decipher it and and make sense out of it and um, i hope that we will I, I remain hopeful that the uh... the manuscript will in fact be uh, deciphered
0: it would certainly be a big story
1: Yes, I would. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, I tend to spend, I spend a lot of time as kind of a, a, a Voynich DeBunker. And, and it's not that I take any joy from explaining why this solution or that solution doesn't fit the facts or is methodologically flawed. I certainly don't take joy in that. I would like nothing more than to dig into a solution and find that it checks all the boxes, um, and I'll be the first to to trumpet the joyous news if I ever do encounter a solution that I feel um, that I can get behind.
0: Your own job, you're executive director of the Medieval Academy of America, can you describe what this organization does and its goal?
1: Sure, so um, contrary to what the name suggests, the Medieval Academy of America is not a school for jousting or or for taking classes in you know um, bow and arrow hunting or something the Medieval Academy is a learned society a professional organization sort of like the antiquarian booksellers Association of America we are the professional organization that people uh, to to which people who study the middle ages belong we support the work of students and faculty and everyone anyone who is interested in the middle ages and who studies the middle ages so we give out grants we publish a journal called speculum um, and we uh, publish books we have a conference and membership in the academy is open to anyone who is interested in the middle ages um, our website is medievalacademy.org uh, and i invite your listeners to go and take a look and see um, see what we offer and to to join us and participate in the work that we're doing. We also do a lot of public outreach. Uh, I mentioned before um, the misappropriations and misinterpretation of the medieval period in the public sphere. So we're doing a lot more public outreach now um, to try and counter some of that. Uh, And we're also getting more involved in uh, working with K through 12 educators to help them develop curricula that will meet their core standards, but also um, that will uh, appropriately represent the, the medieval period in their classrooms.
0: Okay, so you must have handled and researched countless medieval books and materials. W- what do you think they can teach us today, 500 years later?
1: So I have indeed, over the last 30 years, handled, um, I would say, hundreds of medieval manuscripts, pre-1600 handwritten books, Um, and I continue to be amazed by what they have to offer us. For one thing, they are the largest repository of medieval art that survived to this day. Uh, They preserve science, mathematics, literature, liturgy, theology, philosophy, um, literature, everything that has to do with the medieval world survives in um, the books that survived we hear we, we by looking at them by studying them we can learn what people were interested in and people in different contexts what were people studying in the in the schools in the universities uh, in Paris and Venice what were people reading at court What were monks and nuns? What kind of work were they producing? Um, Who was the intended audience of this literature? There's so much to glean about medieval people from the books that that they left behind. But I'm also particularly interested, as I said before, in how these objects, these artifacts survived from there and then to here and now. How did they get to where they are today. Why is a 14th century manuscript from northwestern France in Nevada? How in the world did it get there? And who think about thinking about all the the hands that touched it, that handled it, the the eyes that read it, um, over those centuries, that piece of the, the puzzle, the journey, uh, is one of the things that I find really, um, really magical about manuscripts is thinking about their their stories and what they have to tell us not just about their origins but about their their journey to where they are uh, where they are today.
0: So to your earlier points about Game of Thrones, the medieval period seems strongly represented in TV, movies and, and it's always been written about in, in, in fictional novels. Is, mm-hmm. is this a good thing or a bad thing for historians such as yourself?
1: Well I think it's both because on the one hand, you do get a lot of people who who really think that they know everything they need to know about the medieval period because they watched or read Game of Thrones, uh, or they play video games, or they watch movies, um, or they they love Tolkien. You know, they love Lord of the Rings. And J.R.R. Tolkien was himself a very important medievalist, and there is a lot to learn from reading his work. But his work is obviously fantasy and fiction. It's not meant to be an accurate representation of medieval life. So that, if you stop there, that's not a good thing. So don't. I encourage people: if you want, loved Game of Thrones or you love Tolkien or you play medieval video games, that's not shouldn't be the end of your investigations into the medieval period if you suddenly find yourself really captivated by that era you can take a class you can take an online class sometimes for free you could, there are books you can read nonfiction books you can go attend a lecture if you're a student sign up for a medieval history course or or medieval literature and you know that that I think is a good thing if it generates curiosity and it brings people in the door and puts their butts in the seats i think that's a a great thing uh if those cultural um milieus are an, an on-ramp to the middle ages to studying the actual middle ages i think that can only be uh, for the good
0: so france and england did indeed fight a hundred year war which sounds straight out of a fantasy novel
1: <laughs> it's true <laughs> that's absolutely true but it's a, it's a true thing, right? I mean, it's a real thing, and you can, in fact, learn the facts about what actually happened. Um, and you can do that by reading a book or sitting in on a lecture or uh, taking, a, taking a class. There's every, every university in the country uh, has at least, they got somebody teaching medieval history, even if it's, uh, you know, a general introductory class that starts with the fall of Rome and goes to World War II, somewhere in there is the Middle Ages. Uh, ideally, you're going to find an entire class devoted to, to medieval literature or medieval history or art history or music or, or anything. Um, but there, there are so many opportunities um, throughout, not just North America, but throughout the world to learn from people who really know something uh, about the medieval period, and I encourage anyone who's interested to seek out and to find those uh, those opportunities.
0: Back to the Voynich manuscript, what will Yale do with it?
1: Well, Yale's job is to care for it. Yale is the is the caretaker of all of its rare books and manuscripts. Their their responsibility is to ensure that the book. Um, survives to be studied and um, by future generations and mostly that means that it doesn't come out of the vault very often it's a that and a lot of their manuscripts you you know you always need special permission um, to look at anything that's that old and that fragile Um, and often the permission is not granted Um, for the Voynich permission is very rarely granted to actually see the book in person, in part because there are very high resolution uh, photographs, images, scans, I should say, digital scans, on Yale's website. They're open access. Anyone can see them, download them. You can publish them without, uh, without getting permission. You don't have to pay for any of that. Yale has a policy of making all of its images freely available to the public. So even if you can't get your hands on the actual Voynich Manuscript, which pretty much nobody can, um, you can at least look at the images, you can read books about it, There's a really fantastic book about it that was published two years ago, edited by the current curator at the Beinecke, Raymond Clemens, and it's a series of really excellent essays on, on a lot of the latest research and the history of research. It's called The Voynich Manuscript, and I, you can get it on Amazon, it's very inexpensive, And it includes also a complete uh, photo facsimile of the manuscript. So that's a a book I would really recommend. Um, There also, uh, at the other end of the scale, is a very high-end, expensive facsimile of the manuscript that was published last year um, by a publisher in Spain. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's S-I-L-O-E with uh, accent ego over the E. And uh, it's quite expensive, but it, is, it reproduces uh, the manuscript in exactly the right size. It reproduces the wormholes, the fold-outs, the wrinkles in the parchment in, in extraordinary, wonderful detail. And so because all these other resources are out there, there's very little reason that anyone needs to actually handle the object anymore because it has been studied in detail, its codecological structure is well known, and it's been photographed um, in very high resolution. So Yale's job really is to protect it. Even when you, um, and I, I have handled it several times, um, and no one is allowed to open the fold-out pages because they're extremely fragile. So even if you do have the manuscript in front of you, there are um, restrictions as to what you can do with it, because we want it to survive. You want it, you know, it's already 600 years old, Um, you want it to survive um, for another 600 years or even more. Uh, Who knows where it will be a thousand years from now? Will Yale University even exist a thousand years from now? Who knows? But uh, if Yale does their job, the manuscript will, uh, will survive and continue to be um, protected in the condition that it's currently in.
0: Do you think it would ever do a, a Rolling Stone style world tour?
1: <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, they did recently, a few years ago, it was, uh, it was loaned out for exhibit, the first time that's ever happened. It was exhibited at the Folger Library. As part of a uh, an exhibition on cryptology and William Friedman in particular, um, <clears throat> and uh, that was, I believe, the only time that Yale has ever loaned it out, uh, <clears throat> and I don't see that I don't see that happening again anytime soon. They may um, exhibit it uh, at the Beinecke. That happens on occasion. Um, this year is the 50th anniversary of Yale's acquisition. Uh, so it would be an interesting time to put it uh, to put it on exhibit I don't know if they have any plans to do that it does tend to draw a crowd uh, and that's not always a good thing
0: yes I, I imagine it would alright one final question Lisa we ask this to all guests um, what book or books are you currently reading
1: uh, well I am right now deep into some uh, some escapist literature <laughs> I'm reading the Outlander series <laughs> uh, which I'm, I'm actually enjoying very much. Um, but that's, uh, that's really um, to, uh, you know, that's my beach reading, my summer beach reading.
0: Yeah, a lot of people enjoy that series. Yep. So that's all we have time for this week. A huge thank you to Lisa Fagan Davis, who is the executive director of the Medieval Academy of America in Boston, Massachusetts.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Richard. It was really a pleasure.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, you can learn more about the Medieval Academy of America by visiting medievalacademy.org. Also, if you've got some suggestions for the show, you can email me at podcast at abebooks.com. Podcast at abebooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.